And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we open the word, let me throw this out there. A good mission statement is something that, that unifies and it drives a group of people or an organization or a company towards their preferred future, future or their desired goals. It's a, it's a measuring stick that's used to uh, help decide what to do and maybe more importantly, what not to do. I, as I was thinking about this this week, as, as we're going to get into kind of the mission statement that Jesus gave his disciples, here's a couple, uh, I think, really great mission statements for companies that I found online. Uh, the first is for Yeti. You guys know who Yeti is? They make coolers and water bottles and coffee mugs. Excellent. Their mission statement is to build the cooler we would use every day if it existed. That's pretty cool. I like, like, so everyone shows up to work and here's... The goal, to build a cooler we would use every day if it existed. I like that one a lot. Tesla, uh, their mission statement is to create the most compelling car company of the 21st century by driving the world's transition to electric vehicles. I mean, that is like, I'm in. Rah, rah, let's do this. Uh, TED, you guys have heard of TED Talks. You've seen them online, maybe. Their mission statement is to spread ideas. That's pretty straightforward, blunt. I could even memorize that one, probably. That's, I like that. I couldn't get through this without bringing at least one coffee company. So here's Starbucks. And notice what it doesn't say a lot about. Coffee. Right? Their mission statement is to inspire and nurture the human spirit. One person, one cup, one neighborhood at a time. I like that one, too. Here at Trinity, our mission statement is this. We exist to see people transformed. That's kind of one of the, the key words that we wanted in that, transformed into fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And so when we meet as leaders and elders and when we try to make decisions as, as, as your pastor and this sort of thing, that is the, the guide for those decisions. It's the measuring stick for what we do, but also what we decide, you know what, we're going to let somebody else do that. And so, uh, again, never say never, but Trinity Bible Church will probably never start a thrift store. Right? Someone else has got that under control. They're doing a great job. We're going to support them. We're going to love them. We're going to pray for their ministry. We're not going to start our own thing. Right? We're probably never going to start out of Trinity Bible Church a crisis pregnancy care center right? Cochrane's got one. We've partnered with them. We, we serve with them. When they come out here, we're trying to work on ways we can partner. With. That's their deal. It's great. We love them. We, we support them, but that's not going to fit where we see us going, coming out of this mission statement. So we're in John 16. If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to open, open it up there, click there, swipe there, whatever you've got to do. And in these chapters, remember, we're in this long, it's the longest single teaching section of Jesus from chapter 13 through 17. And we're chunking our way through this. And in these chapters, we kind of see Jesus giving his disciples something of a mission statement to go forward. And of course, if he's giving this to his disciples, then it extends to us today as well. And of course, it all revolves around the gospel. Here's how that mission statement might look. I found this as in my study this week. We as disciples have been chosen by Jesus 
to bear the fruit of the gospel in our lives and share the message of the gospel with our lips. So now if you consider what we've looked at from John 13 and 14 and 15, and now we're in kind of the heart of 16, I think you see Jesus laying out, here's what the new community is going to look like. And I think this is a pretty good statement. The disciples, all the way down to us today, have been chosen by Jesus to bear the fruit of the gospel in our lives and share the message of the gospel with our lips. See, here's the thing. Even though Jesus is leaving, the disciples still have a job to do on earth. Their job, their mission, is to live together as a new community of faith in such a way that the world will see that the gospel is true and it works, that it has the power to change lives. They're to serve as witnesses to the gospel. They're going to be the ones to testify, as we saw last week, to an unbelieving world about Jesus, who he is, what he did, what he came to do, and what he accomplished. And so when we look at all of these chapters and these verses, we need to interpret them in light of the mission that Jesus is passing on to his disciples. If you're a follower of Jesus today, you have been called to the same mission, to be witnesses to the worlds around us. Our lives are meant to display the fruit of a growing relationship with Jesus. And the way we live in the world today should cause those around us, whether we're in Canmore or Banff or Golden or wherever else we are, our neighbors should look at us and say, what? What's going on there? If you remember last week, we looked at, uh, briefly, we jumped ahead to 1 Peter 2.9, where, where Peter says to, of the church, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and in the King James, a peculiar people. We're supposed to be seen by our neighbors as a peculiar people to look at us and say, where do they get that love, joy, peace, patience? Not everything goes perfect for them, but they seem to be faithful and gentle and self-controlled. What's going on? That is our mission. That is our call. That's what we should be showing to the world around us. Now, as I read that and think about my past week, I get a little bit uncomfortable And I kind of hope you do too. How on earth do we live up to that? Well, here's the good news. You can't. Thanks for being with us this morning. God bless you. But that's what Jesus is going to tell the disciples and us in this passage today. This mission that he's handing to them and all the way down to us, it's way bigger than them. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than the disciples. It's bigger than the church. It's it's about Jesus. And in order to accomplish this mission, we will require supernatural help. So let me start reading the text for us, and then we will jump in. John 16, I'm picking up in about the middle of verse 4. Jesus says to his disciples, I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But Because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now, this is, again, the night before Jesus goes to the cross. And he says that there's a few things that, even though they've been together for a long time, he hasn't, uh, hasn't chosen to teach them yet. He hasn't needed to teach them these things yet. They weren't ready to hear them even yet. And so now he's now starting to teach these things. And the disciples are, are hopefully catching on and starting to see that the mission of Jesus is bigger than them. This thing that they're a part of is bigger than now the 11 of them plus Jesus. This thing that Jesus is about to do, 
what he's been preparing them for the entire time they've been together is, is about more than just him. It's about more than even Israel. So what are some of these things that Jesus says in these verses that he's now starting to make clear to them? First, until this larger discussion, until these chapters, Jesus hasn't fully revealed his departure to them. Now, throughout the Gospel of John up to this point, we've seen Jesus speak about his death, uh, but the disciples don't understand what he's talking about. They don't get, why we're, we're just momentum's building. What do you mean you're dying? But it wasn't until after Judas left the room a couple chapters earlier that Jesus now begins to carefully and deliberately teach about his coming death and resurrection and ascension. The second thing Jesus hasn't fully taught yet is he hasn't fully revealed their mission. He hasn't really explained to the disciples what they're going to do. And so now as he's preparing them to go, he starts to, we've said he's redefining the relationship. He's setting them up for what it will look like once he's gone. And even in this passage, we still see Jesus unfolding piece by piece his plan for the disciples. And bit by bit, they're learning what it's going to mean to be a follower of Jesus in the next days, weeks, and months, and years after the cross. See, the cross is the center point of the Bible and ultimately of human history. Everything in Scripture before the cross points to it, and everything that comes after the cross is shaped by it and looks back at it. And so the cross, which is, again, the next day when Jesus is teaching here, will become the focal point of the disciples' mission. And they'll be sent to the nations as messengers of the cross. The third thing, until now, Jesus has not fully revealed the world's reaction to the message. And we saw this in the verses right before where we picked up this morning, that Jesus warned the disciples that they would be hated for this message. They'd be kicked out of the synagogues. Everything that makes up your identity as Jewish people right now, expect to be thrown away from that. And he says, when they kill you, the religious people will assume they're doing God's work. Buckle up, boys. Now, the reason that Jesus hadn't yet told them these things about his leaving, about their mission and the world's reaction is because he was still with them. Up to this point, these weren't things that they needed to worry their little heads about yet. At this point, up until here, they just needed to listen to Jesus. They needed to follow with him. They needed to, to pay attention to what he was saying. They needed to, to make their mistakes and be corrected and, and just learn to trust him and believe him. But now things are changing. Jesus is, is no longer going to be with them physically, and he's turning the work over to them. It's going to be their job now to call people to come and see, to make more disciples. Now, I think we say this probably every week, but what do you think was going through the disciples' minds over the course of this meal? Everything that they thought they were starting to understand about who Jesus was and what he was about to do, and now we're coming to Jerusalem and there's fanfare and all these things are going on, Jesus has just thrown that all up into the air. I can't imagine how it must have felt when Jesus basically said, I'm leaving, you're going to be hated, but keep telling people about me. Keep doing what we've been doing. And so it's, it's no wonder, really, in verse 6, that Jesus basically says, everything, every, every, ever since I started telling you these things around this table, boy, you guys have been really, like, grief-stricken. Like, 
what's going on? You're full of grief. Now, these feelings, of course, are reasonable, even natural. I'm sure I would, I, my head would be spinning. I'd be like, wait a minute, but Jesus, what do you mean you're going, Jesus? But Jesus actually gives them a little bit of a rebuke in verse 5. Because it seems like from the moment he starts to say, Jesus starts to say, I'm going, they're focused on how is this going to affect me? Okay, Jesus, you said you're going, how, how do I get there? What, what are we going to do in light of this? Their thoughts seem to be kind of consumed with themselves, how their lives will continue. And they're so focused on themselves that they actually don't even ask where he's going. Jesus calls that out in verse 5, right? You haven't even asked, where are you going, Jesus? And the couple of questions we do have recorded, Peter in chapter 13 and Thomas in 14, are both not so they can understand more about what Jesus is up to, but to find out how this new development will affect them. What do you mean we know the way? What, What do you mean we can't go with you? And Jesus gives them a bit of a rebuke. Now, he loves these guys. Jesus loves these disciples. Sometimes love calls, calls you out. Jesus doesn't call out their grief because their grief is wrong. He's leaving. That's worth grieving. But the reason they're grieving, that Jesus is leaving, is insignificant in light of what's about to happen. As one writer says, Jesus is not demeaning their concern for their future, but instead he's lifting their eyes to look beyond their circumstances into something much better. And how often do we get stuck in that first part, looking at our own circumstances, when, when we need Jesus to, to give us a little shake, lift our chins a little bit, say, let's look beyond your little world, Sean, and let's see what, let me show you what we're really up to here. Something so much greater. See, what's about to happen on the cross the next day is, is way more important than the disciples' health and safety It's about more of them. It's so much bigger than them. Jesus is calling his disciples to live a life for something so much bigger than themselves. And and let me tell you, that call extends to today. Jesus is calling us to something so much bigger than themselves. And that is the cry of every heart of every person, maybe especially in our youngest up-and-coming generations, to be a part of something that matters. We see it. It doesn't matter what it is, but if it it matters, I want to be there. I want to be a part of it. I want to change the world. Jesus offers us that. He says, my mission is about more than just your individual hopes and dreams. His mission is, is, is worth giving up our convenience and comfort. Things like safety and security and stability to invest in something that is eternally profitable. And Jesus calls us to invest our time, our energy, our money, our influence, our abilities, not in the 80 or so years we have on this earth, statistically, to to build up whatever we have and amass what we have and say, look at my toys, but it's to invest in the next 80 years after we're gone and the next 80 years after that and the 80 years after that. Eternal significance. There's a story, maybe you've heard it, uh, it's now 20-some years old, there's a, a, a... Youth and Young Adults Conference down in uh, Florida somewhere. It was the first passion conference. It's now, these conferences go all over the place. They, they produce music. They, they do these things. And at this conference, one of the speakers was, uh, was John Piper. And some of the, the young adults in the crowd said, we weren't sure of who this guy was. He, walked, he didn't look like anyone else. He wasn't, he wasn't like the hip, flashy speaker that we were having. He, you know, he, was, he was like our, our dads, right? He came out, he had his wild, curly, great, already great hair. He'd already lost the top of it. 
I'm like, well, what's this guy got to say to us? And he steps up into the crowd and he gives this message that really did shape a generation. And I don't share it with us to, to belittle us, but to challenge and convict us. Here's a bit of an extended quote. Here's what he says. I know that not everyone in this crowd, again, he's speaking to, to young adults especially, I know not everyone in this crowd wants their life to make a difference. There's hundreds of you. You don't care whether you make a lasting difference for something great. You just want people to like you. And if people would just like you, you'd be satisfied. Or if you could just have a good job with a good wife, a couple of good kids, a nice car and long weekends, make some good friends, a fun retirement, quick and easy death and no hell, well, if you could have that, you would be satisfied, even without God. And even this week as I read that, I was like, man, that was me at 17, 18, 19. I just have a good job, find a good wife, a couple of kids, nice car, white picket fence, the American dream, right? Then he calls out, he says, that's a tragedy in the making. He says, three weeks ago, this again is May 2000, three weeks ago, he says, our, our church got word that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon. Ruby was over 80, single all her life, and she poured her life out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. And Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old, and serving at Ruby's side, Ruby's side in Cameroon. And they were on a bus, and the brakes gave way, and over the cliff they go, and they're gone, killed in an instant. And he says, I asked my people, was this a tragedy? Two lives, driven by one great vision, spent in unheralded service to the, to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ. Two decades after almost all their American counterparts have retired to throw their lives away on trifles in Florida and New Mexico. No, that is not a tragedy. He says, that's a glory. He says, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. And for some reason, he had picked up an article from a Reader's Digest. He said, here's what a tragedy is. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. And now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, playing softball and collecting shells. He says, that's the tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars in order to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. He says, and I get 40 minutes to plead with you. Don't buy it. With all my heart, he pleads, he said, I plead with you, don't buy that dream, the American dream, the nice house, the nice car, the nice job, the nice family, a nice retirement. Collecting shells is the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe and give an account for what you did and say, here it is, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a really nice swing. And look at my boat. And he said the words that then defined a generation. Don't waste your life. Now this, I don't say this today to belittle retirement or playing golf or collecting seashells or rock, whatever it is, but rather for us to think about the mission that Jesus has given us. The mission to, to make a difference in the world. We've been called to something so much greater than us. And someday, every one of us will stand in front of the throne of Jesus and will we say, Jesus, look what I did. I was on a bus that went over the cliff because we were serving people wherever. Or I stand up there and I'll say, Jesus, look at my Mario Kart scores. Look at, look at the, the mountains I climbed. Look at the, the toys I had. Look at the, the quiver of skis. I, whatever it might be. Look at this stuff. The mission is about way more than you or me. And you know what? We cannot do it 
not on our own. This mission that we're called to requires supernatural help. Jesus explains, actually, that his leaving is the best thing that could happen for the disciples. And every time, you've probably heard that verse before, but every time I hear it, I was like, ah, you know what, I'm not so sure. I think it would be great for after the service me to go down Bow Valley Trail and sit down and have a cup of coffee with Jesus at Eclipse. That would, I, he could probably answer some questions. I got some aches he could probably deal with. Like, that's probably pretty good. But Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. See, when Jesus goes, he says that he will send the helper, the advocate, the, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit to live in the disciples as they continue the mission of Jesus to call other disciples to follow Jesus. See, the Spirit will be sent by Jesus to live in the disciples as they continue the mission of Jesus to call other disciples to follow Jesus. He's going to do this through all of us. The advocate wasn't sent, the Holy Spirit wasn't sent to just ease us through our time in life and carry us to heaven when we die. But the Spirit comes to empower the followers of Jesus for a mission that cannot be accomplished without his supernatural help. And in the next verses, Jesus elaborates on the Holy Spirit's role, highlighting the two ways that the, the Spirit advances the mission. And the first is this. The Holy Spirit, he says, will convict the world of sin. Picking up at verse 8. And when he comes, when the advocate comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they don't believe me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now we've read through the Gospel of John that, that Jesus is the light of the world and the light has come to expose the darkness. Especially in chapter 3 he talks about that. The, the light has come to expose the darkness, but the people love the darkness so they rejected the light. What Jesus is saying, when, when I leave, the Holy Spirit is going to come and take up that work of exposing the sin, of being light in the darkness. But he also says that the Spirit will convict the world of righteousness. That's a really interesting phrase, isn't it? What, what does that mean? Well, again, throughout John's Gospel, we find two types of righteousness. One is the righteousness of God, but the other is a type of righteousness that's apart from God, a self-righteous. It's, it's us setting ourselves up as good enough. And we regularly see those two come into contact in the text. One example is in chapter 9. Maybe you remember from when we were back there. Jesus healed the blind man on the Sabbath. And remember some of the reaction of the people. This, is, this isn't normal. Blind people don't see. None of our healers can do this. This doesn't happen. There's something about Jesus. But you remember the reaction of the religious people? Do you remember what they said? They said, how dare you do this on the Sabbath? This, is a, this healing is a messianic prophecy, and they say, how dare you break our self-righteous rules? They set themselves up as the righteous defenders of God's law, and Jesus called them out on this time and time again. They were more concerned with their appearance of righteousness than of actually helping someone in need. In this case, giving sight to a blind man. Now, for us, there will always be a temptation of this false righteousness, trying to earn God's favor through our works. I, I read my Bible this week. I did this good thing. I wasn't mean to that guy. I should have been, but I wasn't. And we will always try to bring the best we can to God. But our own efforts, it's not enough. 
God actually calls our efforts, even our best efforts, polluted in Isaiah 64. They're tainted by sin and they're worthless. So the Holy Spirit convicts us of our self-righteousness and our need for him. And the Spirit will convict the unbelieving world of, of sin and righteousness and judgment. And here, Jesus is saying that the world judges wrong, judges Jesus wrong as well. And even though in, back in chapter 7, Jesus had urged people to, to judge according to right judgment, to righteous judgment, they persisted in their unbelief. And so the Holy Spirit comes to, to reveal our errors in judgment and to call us to repentance and faith. When the text says he, he's come to convict, the, the goal of the conviction is not punishment, but repentance. A turning from sin. How does the Holy Spirit do this? How are, how are people called to repentance and faith? Well, Jesus says here it's through the disciples. The Holy Spirit will work through the disciples to do this. Look at the way these, these chapters have laid it out. In chapter 15, Jesus calls the disciples to be on mission with him, to, be, to abide in him as a vine and branches and together to make more disciples. And, and the end of the chapter, end of chapter 15, he reminds them that the Holy Spirit will bear witness of Jesus through the disciples. Go do this, you, he will testify through you. And then in the beginning of this chapter, he reveals that the mission will bring suffering and persecution. But Jesus reminds, again, the disciples the importance of the mission and that it can only be accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit in them. So the Spirit convicts the world by empowering the disciples to bear witness about Jesus. And the Spirit brings conviction to the world through the message of the disciples. And God blesses this combination of his Spirit working through the disciples to proclaim the gospel to the world and draw more disciples to him. And we see this happen right away in the beginning of Acts, don't we? The role of the disciple is to testify to Jesus, and the role of the Holy Spirit is to make that testimony effective. John Calvin wrote this, How can someone's voice penetrate minds and take root there and eventually produce fruit-making hearts of stone into hearts of flesh and renew the people themselves unless the Spirit of Christ makes the word alive? See, Jesus gives the disciples and us an impossible task. There's no way that, that you and I have the rhetorical skills to just change people's minds by ourselves. You and I can't change people's hearts with, with a great argument. There's no way people would just listen to us for that. There's no way we can make this work. But if we're like branches attached to the vine and the, the life and the love of Jesus flows through us, into us, through us, to the world around us, then and only then, through the Spirit's power, can we accomplish everything that Jesus promised. Everything good that has happened in Christianity is the result of the Holy Spirit's power. One commentary I, I was reading and studying from helpfully said this to help us kind of pinpoint this a little bit. He said, maybe you don't realize the Spirit's power in your life because you aren't busy doing things that only He can accomplish. Ah. He says, without the Spirit's help, you know what? You can love people who look like you. Without the Spirit's help, you can come and you can sit in a service on a Sunday morning once a week. Without the Spirit's help, you could attend a, a small group or a community group or a Sunday seminar. Without the Spirit's help, you could even put some money in an offering plate or in a box at the back, whatever the case may be. Without the Spirit's help, you can even talk about the gospel. 
He says, but you know what you can't do without the Spirit's help? He says, without the Spirit's help, you can't love someone who is antagonistic to you and your family. Not for long, anyways. Without the Spirit's help, you can't be on call 24-7 for a person in need. Without the Spirit's help, you can't meet weekly with a brother or sister and bear each other's burdens. Without the Spirit's help, you can't give your hard-earned money, even when there's just a little left. Without the Spirit's help, you can't plead with your unbelieving friends and neighbors to repent and believe. Without the Spirit's help, you can't move your family around the world for the sake of the gospel. Because for us to be faithful to the mission that Jesus has called us to, we need the Spirit's help. One of my prayers for us, for anyone who's hearing this, is that we would be a group of Jesus followers that lean into the things that we can't do without the Spirit's help. There's lots, we've said that lots of times, we've got a lot of talented people in and around Trinity. We can do a lot of things just with the, the skills and abilities we have. But oh, that we would be a people that would see that level and say, okay, let's take it to the next level, the level where God's got to show up. The Spirit has to work through us and trust him to do that. The other thing the Holy Spirit will do is, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will guide the disciples into truth. Verse 12, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them right now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. For he will glorify me, for he takes what is mine and, declare, and will declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, again, almost every part of these last words of Jesus would have undoubtedly left the disciples' minds spinning. No doubt they had all kinds of questions. And Jesus says, you know, I've, I've got more to say, but you, uh, let's, let's just sit here for a minute. Let's, let's marinate on this one for a little bit. Jesus was describing to them a mission that would take their entire life their entire life, and would abbreviate every single one of their lives too, wouldn't it? He un unpacks a new community and the way it will live together, and I'm sure there were a ton of questions. But really interesting, you know what Jesus doesn't do when he describes this new community? When he, he says how this is going to work after he's gone? And I think it's really significant. He doesn't give them specifics. He doesn't say, okay, once I'm gone, here's how your gathering should look. You, someone stands up, gives some announcements, praise, three songs, praise, message, two songs, dismissal, go. He doesn't tell them step by step what to do. He doesn't tell them how they should deal with conflict. He's taught them principles and all these things, of course. He doesn't tell them how to make decisions or what, what the buildings should look like or, or, or any number of a hundred questions that we're still asking today. Jesus, what does it look like for us to follow you in Canmore in 2021, in this space, in this climate, and all these things? But instead of answering the questions, he gives a promise. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He says, the answers will come. It's okay. I know you've got questions. The answers will come. But they're going to come through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is a promise from Jesus filled with, with grace and kindness. It's interesting that the only other time that John uses this particular word for guide, when he says that the Spirit of truth will guide you into all truth, the only other time we find it in John's writing is in Revelation chapter 7. 
And we read this. For the Lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them, and he will guide them to springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The Holy Spirit will, will guide the disciples to truth like a shepherd leads thirsty sheep to a cool, refreshing spring. For them, the, the Spirit will, will reiterate and remind and expand the truth taught by Jesus to them. He will declare and reveal Jesus to the disciples, just like Jesus has been doing. For the disciples, this means the Spirit would guide them to truth. They would, they would be reminded of the things that they saw Jesus do, that they heard him say, the way he treated people, the way he handled certain things. The Spirit would remind them of all these experiences. But for you and I, this looks different because we are not with Jesus. This is not the first century. We're not walking the roads of Palestine with Jesus. Instead, the Spirit inspired those disciples who wrote down the things they remembered into a book that we can have and the Spirit can speak to us through those words in a similar way. And so now the, the, the Holy Spirit brings truth to us as we open up the Word. And that means that just like Jesus said the Spirit would do then, it would convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Bible does that for us too. That's why we lean on it. Our truth comes from His Word from the Bible. And that's why we emphasize spending time in our Bibles and getting together outside of Sunday mornings to, to study the Bible because that's where our truth comes from. Sometimes I, I wonder, and I, I know this is sadly true for me, sometimes I wonder if we avoid our Bibles because we don't want to be guided by the Spirit. We know that, that when we open the Word, there's some spots in there that are going to convict us of sin and righteousness and poor judgment. We know that the Word can call out some things in our lives that we've been allowing. And so we just kind of avoid it. Instead, sometimes we, we treat our Bibles like a buffet table. A little bit of meat, a little bit more meat, skip the salad, dessert. We open to the text that we know will say what we want them to say and avoid the ones that will really just kind of upset the life that we have built for ourselves. And here's the thing. Jesus promises to guide us, but we need to listen, even, maybe especially, when the truth is hard to hear. And the Spirit will guide us into truth as we listen to him speak through his word. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you again for this passage that we've been in, for these words. Thank you for the promises that you continue to, to give to your disciples and to us, that you'll be with us, that you'll send uh, the Holy Spirit, the advocate, to, to advocate for us, to put steel in our spine, that, that he will give power, supernatural power to our words as we testify to you. I pray, again, that we would be people of your word, that we wouldn't fear it, but that we would go to it, and that we, we ask that you would...